0: We were doing storyboards for a commercial. This was when computers was first coming on the scene. And We had the storyboards laid out here on the table. Instead of getting on the computer and looking at everything, had posters laid out with drawings. And we were trying to figure out how we should combine these posters to do one scene. And we had a little too much going on. So I said, why don't you take this and put it with this one? Let's take this one out and we could use this one in the other scene. And somebody across the table said, wow, Bo knows.
1: Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. All right, what's up, you gorgeous listeners? It's your boy, Mr. Celia Pennies, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today's episode is with my childhood idol. And because of you, yes, you, I got to meet him this year. His name is Bo Jackson. This episode is really special to me because Bo was my dad's favorite athlete. My dad passed away a few years ago, so it was on my bucket list to meet Bo in memory of my dad, learn more about Bo Jackson, and share his story with you. If you don't know who Bo is, and I know you know, Bo was the first dual sport athlete to be voted an all-star in baseball and football. He was also the face of the most successful marketing campaign I would say ever, which is the Nike series, Bo Knows. This year to honor my dad and support Bo, I invited all of you to help me fundraise for Bo's charity, Bo Bikes Bama, which helps fund the Alabama Relief Fund after devastating natural disasters. Make sure to check that out at bobikesbama.com. With your help, we raised $30,596. That's insane. We raised so much that Bo's team reached out to connect and do this interview. In today's chat, I talked to Bo about his experience, including things he's never been asked before. We talked about first, What did Bo do after he accomplished his dreams of becoming a superstar athlete? Second, what's it like to be in that limelight and get everyone paying attention to you all at the same time? Third, how the infamous marketing campaign Bo knows actually happened. Who came up with the idea, how Bo felt about it, and behind-the-scenes details? Fourth, how Bo's moral compass cost the Tampa Bay Buccaneers their number one overall draft pick, which is crazy. You'll learn these four things and a bunch more. Enjoy. Enjoy.
0: My mother raised 10 kids in a three-room house that was less than 700 square feet. That was right at 700 square feet. Outdoor plumbing, which means we had an outhouse in the backyard. No running hot water. That's how I was raised during the winter. It was weather like this outside. I went to school barefoot in the snow, in the snow because I didn't have shoes to wear. And I'm thinking that's normal. I'm thinking that all kids that don't have shoes to wear gotta go to school barefoot. I realized that I was the only person sitting in the classroom with no shoes on and the teacher noticed me and she contacted the board of education, not because my mother was a bad parent, but because I didn't have shoes to wear, but I still came to school. My first pair of real shoes, there's a TV show that's come on called My Three Sons and they showed the shoes. My first pair of shoes was like those shoes. And uh, my first pair of shoes that was mine, because all my other shoes were hand-me-downs from my brothers and my sisters. And I got my first pair of shoes in 1969, 1970, that I could say was mine, because I remember this man's face. He was about the size of my dad, which he was a big man, got me and took me downtown Bessemer and bought me a new pair of shoes. So me being down to earth, I say it like this. You can't miss something that you never had or never experienced. I never experienced being treated like a silver stoner. So when people want to do that for me, I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to send a limo at me. Or I'll ride with somebody. I'll catch a ride with somebody that's coming that way. I try to help people because a lot of people helped my mom out when I was a kid. There were days hell when we didn't have nothing to eat but cornbread and people in the neighborhood would help each other out. Everybody in the neighborhood was poor. Nobody had a good job to where they could go on vacation or go out to eat at a restaurant. The restaurant was McDonald's or Burger King. (laughs) That was the type of restaurant that we knew about as a kid. So now doing the philanthropic thing to help people out that are less fortunate than me, it's uh, a no-brainer for me. What did your mom do for work? My mother was a custodial worker. But in the thing that I say uh, about that, instead of calling them a maid or janitor, I call them custodial engineers, because that's what my mother was. And whenever I speak any big convention to where they're serving dinner, I always make it a point to recognize those people. I said, because my mother raised me and my nine brothers and sisters off of the same job that you. Because a lot of these people are hardly recognized. And the thing that I do when I see these people, I stop them and shake their hand and say, I see you. I see you. Because I'm quite sure nobody paid my mother any attention when she was cleaning the hotel room or anything like
1: that. One thing that I'm I'm really impressed with is that you grew up, you had a bunch of brothers. Your mom was working all the time. From the stories I've heard about you, like your morals and your discipline, I'm curious how you developed that, like the morals about Tampa Bay, the morals about going to Auburn. Where do you think that came from?
0: It's just the fact that when my mother said that she was going to do something, she'd do it, period. And most of the time when she said that she was going to do something, it was more like, boy, I'm going to whoop your ass. <laughs> and, and then i take out running. And she'd tell my brothers and sisters, if you don't catch him, you are going to take his ass whooping for him. And they'd chase and they'd run me down. My brothers and sisters, they had a system to where they would send two after me, and they would run me strategically around the block, and they would be tired, and another one would <laughs> take off at me. <laughs> so they would literally run me into the ground, then they'd drag me back home. And the neighbors would come out. Let's say if it was on a Saturday or Sunday evening, the neighbors would stop their dinner, come out on their decks to watch me get a butt whipping in the front yard. <laughs> It's like a show. Oh, they'd be sitting there eating and they come out and they yell back into Hey, she is about to whoop his ass again. Come out and see this right there in the front yard. And it would be with the switch or whatever, a belt. She whipped me, she stripped me down to my whitey tighties right there in the front yard and tear my ass up. But that was all part of my childhood because I needed that. Because if I
1: didn't, who knows where I would be right now? When did you realize like was it really young? or Was it in high school? Was it in college that you're like, oh, wow, I might be actually a pro athlete? I wanted to go to
0: college when I was a kid. I told my mother that I'm either going to go to college or else I'm going to go to the military to learn how to fly jets. Been an airplane bluff all my life. She said, well, you better go down to the Army and sign up down there because I don't got no money to send you to college. And lo and behold, I got a full ride to go play football, to go play baseball, to run track at all. So I lettered in three sports while I was there and still maintained a GPA to where I was a CB student. Like I said, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I kept my grades decent enough to where it kept me out of the newspaper. And when I left Auburn in four years, I only had six classes to complete before I got my degree. I postponed it for 10 years until I promised my mother before she passed away that I would go back and finish for
1: her, which I did. Is that what happened with Tampa Bay? Like they promised one thing?
0: No, they didn't promise one thing. They actually, at the time, they knew that I was going to be the first round, that I was going to be the first player pick. And they had the first pick in the draft. They also knew that I was a standout baseball player. First couple of weeks into baseball season, I was hitting 600 with eight, nine home runs already. And we were just two weeks into the season. And I had to take a visit. You know how they take a visit to the teams that's probably going to draft you first. I had the guy that was acting as my manager because I didn't have an agent at the time. You didn't allow to have an agent. But I had a manager to help me facilitate everything. And they coincided with the manager to have me to come to Tampa to visit over the weekend. And uh, they said, well, Mr. Coverhouse is going to send his jet to pick you up. I asked my manager. Was it okay that they check with the NCAA? And he came back and said, Tampa Bay, check with the NCAA. And since you're going to be the first-round pick of theirs, that you can fly on their jet. Well, I went there, spent the weekend there, had a nice time visiting with the players, going out to dinner and so forth and so on. I got back to college. I think I played in two games. Then the third game that I was about to play in, I was going to the baseball park. And I got to the park. In my uniform, and the coach said, Bo, can I talk to you on the side of the building? Behind the dugout, I said, yeah. He said, did you take a trip to Tampa Bay last week to go visit him?" I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, so how did you go? I said, I flew on the owner's jet, Hugh Coverhouse, sent his jet over to Columbus to pick me up. And he said, did you check with the NCAA? He said, did they check with the NCAA to make sure there's was leaving? I said, yes, sir, they told me that they did. And he said, Bo, they never did. And the NCAA has declared you ineligible for the rest of the baseball season. And I sat behind the dugout and cried like a baby. And then as I was walking back to take off my uniform, because I wasn't going to ever put on my college uniform. But again, I said, well, since they fucked me out of my baseball season, I'm going to fuck them out of their first round draft pick. And it's going to hurt them way more than it's going to hurt me than what they did to me. And I told them, I said, don't even bother by drafting me. Because I'm not going. I said, I will sit out an entire year and go play with another football team before I come and play for Tampa Bay. Well, they figured, well, this is a poor black kid, and then we're going to draft you anyway. And I said, you draft me if you want. It'll be the biggest mistake you made as far as drafts are concerned. And they drafted me. And they didn't believe me. And I told them, no, I'm not going. I said, I'm sitting out. And then once baseball season was over, in the supplementary baseball draft. So a lot of teams were looking at me. And my head coach, he played a short stint with the Kansas City Royals. So the Kansas City Royals and Art Stewart, who is still the oldest Major League scout alive today. He is in his 90s. He lives right up the road here about an hour and a half from here in Wisconsin, scouted me. And he called down and asked my head coach, is Bo serious about playing baseball? And he said, he is as serious as I am on the phone talking to you right now. So they drafted me in the supplementary draft. If I had to finish my baseball career at Auburn, I probably would have been one of the first players picked in the baseball (laughs) draft also. So I went and played baseball with the Kansas City Royals. And then a year afterwards, when my time was up, being under the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I could look at other teams and the Raiders call. There was only two teams at the time that I would have considered playing for, and that was the 49ers and the Raiders, and the Raiders call first. So that's what happened. I think I get part of my, I wouldn't call it stubbornness, but if I give you my word, that's my bond. If I tell you that I'm going to hit you in the head with a rock tomorrow (laughs) at 11.30, no matter where you are, you're going to get hit in the head with a rock at 11.30 <laughs> because that's what I did. And, and your word, in my view, is your bond. And if you break that, then you can't be trusted. So I told them what I was going to do, and I did it. But I did it, and that's how I am till this day.
1: When you first walked out on the stadium, it's like you know 50,000 people. What was it like the first time you ever walked out on the stadium with so many people around you?
0: Well, I never paid any attention to it. The only thing that I was thinking, if you get in the game, don't fumble the ball. I never paid any attention to the crowd, period, because I know that I got a job to do. And if my mind is in the stands, I'm not going to successfully do what I'm supposed to do, do my job out on the field. Even though you hear it, you don't pay attention to it because you got somebody on the other side that's trying to rip your head off. I was curious about that as well. What's it like to get tackled at full speed well with me i learned that, that it's better to give a lick than take one so i never got tackled i ran over a lot of people and fell down i don't think i got tackled in my career i don't think i got tackled no more than a half a dozen times to where people hit me and i gave where they hit me and knocked me down i'm usually running over people and trip and fall down so it's a big difference and that's just how it was one day in practice. We had this three on three drill. Defensive tackle, Donnie Humphrey. Well, he's since passed. God rest his soul. He tackled me and caved in my face mask. So the face mask on the helmet comes out like this. Mine came out, had a dent in it back out where he caved my face mask in. And as he's on top of me, just learning, he said, Welcome to the SEC freshman. And we were right under the coach's tower. And Coach Dye was up on the tower. And he said, Bo. I look up at him because I'm pulling dirt out of my helmet, out of my ear hole. And I'm looking up at him as I'm taking my helmet off to give to the equipment guy so he can put a new face mask on. He said, Bo. I said, yes, sir. He said, you 6'2", about 215 pounds. I said, yes, sir. He said, you the fastest guy on the team. Aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, don't you think it's better with your size and speed to give a lick than take one? And a light came on. From that day on, I started running over people or running through people. I start, I, But I learned how to run behind my shoulder pads. And as a ball carrier, if you don't do that, you're going to get cut in half. So I learned how to run behind my shoulder pads and let my shoulder pads ab- absorb
1: all of the impact. And everything was a piece of cake. Did you mind all the attention? I imagine you go out now, You everyone recognizes you well, before you go.
0: Listen, even in college, when... When everybody claimed that I was a big fish on campus, I never carried myself like that. Put it to you just like this. I wasn't raised that way. If I'm going to give credit to somebody, it's going to be my teammates because without them, I wouldn't be the person that I am. They helped me get to where I am. I was never a flamboyant person. Put it to you like, I wasn't Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders is a good <laughs> friend. He is a very good friend of mine. Charles Barkley is a good friend but of mine. And I think it stems from my speech impediment as a kid that I was always quiet. I always wanted to stay in the background. And till this day, I'm like that. I would rather reflect the attention to someone else. Because now that I'm older, I don't need it. I don't need it. And most of the time, I don't even want it. But it's just the fact that instead of me going out, and I'm not saying the other people are like this, but I know how I am. I like my privacy. I love the fact that I'm happy sitting in my basement, unhooked a smoke detector and gluing hot glue to make arrows to go hunting next season and got the TV on down in my basement. I'm happy sitting in my basement watching hunting shows on TV when everybody else is out at the clubs and at the bars and doing things. Now, whenever I want to hang out with my buddies, we're hanging out either working or tooling on our old cars with my car buddies, or I'm hanging out with my hunting buddies. we planning hunting trips to go somewhere, or I'm hanging out with my buddies, checking out the new lures that we're going to go fishing with the next year. That's my genre of not Being Bo Jackson, staying away from the limelight, getting out. If somebody comes and say, hey, we're going to go downtown Austin this evening to hang out at this new restaurant that's opening, got a nice bar, and there's going to be a crowd, you can go by yourself. (laughs) You can go by yourself. But my four years in Auburn, and I'm not exaggerating, my four years in Auburn, I can almost promise you I didn't go out to the bars or to the nightclub. I bet I didn't go out no more than four or five times my four years at college. After a football game, I'm room 221, Sewell Hall. I was in my room. Door open, the blinds open, because my room faced the baseball field. And they had the lights on in the baseball stadium. And just across the street from the baseball field is the football stadium. And the lights are on because the workers are cleaning up in the stadium after the game. So those lights would be on till midnight, 1 a.m., and I got my door open, and the dorm is a ghost town because everybody's out partying. And I'm in my room with the door open. People would come by, hey, you want to go out and party? Nope, stay in in my room. I understood at an early age is that in order to be a superstar on the playing field, you got to be a superstar in the classroom first. Because every week you get up and read the paper, some high-profile athlete is in trouble. Because of his grades. And I made it a point because I knew where I come from, and I knew how hard my mother worked to support 10 kids. And I didn't want anything to reflect back on her. So even though I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I made sure that I was prepared well enough to hold my own in the classroom. I'm like, I can't go out here and be Superman on the football field on Saturday. Then get to class on Monday and don't know my my nose from my butt in class. So I made it a point to study. And like I said, I wasn't a a student. Hell, if I got a B in class, I celebrated. (laughs) If I got a C plus in some class, I celebrated. But it was a fact that I knew how to keep my name out of the paper for the wrong reasons. Because that's what everybody looks for. When you are a celebrity, you're under a microscope. And any little flaw that the news world could use to make a story, they put it in the paper. And I'm not saying that the media is bad, but how many times have you picked up the newspaper? and read a positive article in the newspaper. <laughs>
1: Not too often. Thank you. So it sounds like it was easy for you to stay grounded during a lot of this very, time. Very, easy. How did you choose what you want to do next? Because sometimes I'm thinking about, people have these dreams, right? People listening, yourself, myself, are like I want to be an athlete or I want to be this. And then once you accomplish it, I kind of wonder what, how they choose what they do afterwards.
0: It was easy for me from the standpoint that sports was never the center of my universe. So it was easy for me to, once I was done with sports, I was done with sports. I always took pride in knowing that there were other things that I wanted to do with my life. There's other things that I wanted to try. So cooking, that was natural for me because I've been cooking since I was five, six years old. So I know my way around the kitchen. I know my way up and down a supermarket aisle. And I went with my mother a lot. And I learned how to cook, not from going to culinary school, but just watching good cooks growing up as a child. I know what to cook and. Now, when I'm home, most people think I sit up and watch sports. I watch the Discovery Channel, the Food Channel, and <laughs> stuff like that, because I already know how to play sports, and so forth and so on. So that's what I'm doing in my spare time when I'm just resting. I'm watching shows at home that most people would never think that I would be sitting at home watching.
1: Do we need to get you on Iron Chef? Uh,
0: No, but I watch Iron Chef. Those guys are way out of my league. But I do watch them. I do look at their technique. I do look at the food that they're cooking. And every now and then, I steal a recipe from them, and I make it at home.
1: It's interesting. So it makes me wonder, did you not like the limelight when you started getting all the attention for sports? It's not that I didn't like the
0: limelight. A lot of people in whatever profession that they have, a lot of people don't know how to separate their job from the life after that job. Because a lot of people think, well, this is going to last forever. And it doesn't. And I was never in that boat. I never thought that way. Even before I went to college, I knew that I wanted to be in and out of college sports, professional sports by the time I was in my early 30s. And I was, mainly because of an injury. But after the first week of being out of sports, after missing it for the first weekend, but in questioning God, why did this have to happen to me? it was over and done with. I closed that chapter and started another chapter in my life, so it was fairly easy for me. And like I said, sports was never the center of my universe. And I think that's where a lot of people cheat themselves. And it doesn't have to be just sports, it could be any profession, because they think that's gonna last forever, and it never does.
1: One thing with that, it sounds like you're, you're generally more reserved or shy. I was curious, how did you meet your wife if you're you're staying in all the time?
0: Well. I was the fastest man on my team in all my sports probably with the exception of track. She was faster than me. I ran from her and she chased me till I just got tired. She I just gave up cuz I'm not a long distance runner. I'm a sprinter so sprinting and spurts, stop, rest. But she eventually caught me. But my wife is a psychologist. Uh she's a brain assessment therapist and I was getting my major I was getting my degree in psychology and I changed it over to family and child development, which is human science. But uh, I met my wife in college. She had come back to college to start on her doctorate when I was a junior. And we just met one day by chance. I was coming out of the payphone booth and she was putting up flyers for this Black Student Association. She was putting up flyers and we just met and started talking. One thing led to another. We talked again another week from there, and we just continued to talk and went out on dates, found out that we had a lot in common. 30-something years later, we're still together. Three kids later, three college graduate kids later, we're still together. I don't know how. (laughs) I guess that those drugs I've been giving are
1: still working. There's one thing I heard from uh, Lance's show about your parenting style where you burned your kids' clothes.
0: In my house... I'm not gonna say strict rules, but I don't allow my kids to grow up thinking that they're little rich suburban kids that could do whatever they want. I have rules just in my house. You take your dirty clothes off, put them in the hamper or put them in the dirty clothes, dry cleaners bag. I made that rule and my daughter, she understood that rule. My oldest son, he understood that rule. And my youngest son, Nick, that proverbial middle child who happens to be an engineer. <laughs> that proverbial child took his clothes off. but And I told him, I said, look, I said, the cleaning lady, when she comes here, it's not her job to pick your dirty clothes up off of the floor and put them in it. I said, if that happens again, you will know about it. I didn't tell him what I was going to do. About a week later, I go down and look in the room just to make sure everything is in order. And his clothes in the middle of the floor that he wore the day before. I picked them all up jeans, shirt, his Nikes. I took him out. I had a little smoker out in the backyard. I put him in there, put lighter fluid on him, threw a match in there about 2.45. He gets home about 3.30. Bus drops him off. He comes in. His name's Nick. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> <Nick's home>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screwed up middle child. <laughs> so he, he comes in and I say, Nicky, come in here. And we go into the breakfast room. And I make him stand by the window. And I said, look out in the backyard. Tell me what you see. He said, nothing. I said, what do you see out there that you normally don't see when you look out in the yard? He said, well, I see smoke coming out of that thing, which was a smoker. And I said, what do you think that is in that smoker? He said, I don't know. I said, do you remember yesterday what you wore to school? He said, yeah. I said, do you remember where you left it when you took it off? He said, in my room. I said, where in your room? Was it in a dirty clothes hamper? Was it in the dry cleaner? Bad. He said, no. I said, where did you leave? On the floor. I said, guess what? Everything you left on the floor, the remains is in that thing. That's why it's smoking. You want to go out there and take a look? He went out there and got a stick, <laughs> reached out in there and pulled up. I don't know if it was part of his jeans or his hoodie that he had. He just dropped the stick back there and put his head down. And I said, come on back inside. Now, I say, the next time you decide that you're going to leave something on my floor, that's where it's going to end up. I hadn't had that problem since.
1: What other kind of house rules do you guys have?
0: Rules that every house should have for young kids. There's no talking back. There's no disrespecting mom or dad. There's no slamming doors. You don't own anything in that house. (laughs) You don't (laughs) own anything in that house. If I tell you to keep your door open and it's closed, it's coming off the hinges. I did that. (laughs) I took the door off the hinges, put it in the garage. It's simple rules. And it isn't rules to where I'm being a mean parent or an abusive parent. But how many parents you see in this day and age always taking up for their badass kids? Oh, my Jacob would never do that. Oh, my Erica would never drink and drive. Parents in this day and age are too busy about, Being their kids' friends instead of their parents. And then they wonder why their kids disrespect them because they look at you as if you're on their level and they don't respect you because you hang out with them, you give them booze at 13, 14 years old, and they think that they're just as grown up as you. And then the first time you let them talk back, that's your big mistake. But I say this every young kid, preferably male, and I'm not saying this from an abusive standpoint because Before they become teenagers, they should realize that the mother is the boss of the house and the dad second. The dad is just the enforcer. And if they know that, everything's happy. The way I raise my kids is that you always, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, may I please and thank you. That's the way you are seven days a week if you're in school or if you're at home. If some of my friends come to the house, It's yes, sir, no, sir. It's not yeah and no. And you don't call them by their first name like I do. You either got to call them Mr. Hodges, Mr. Clinton, Mr. Smith, or so forth and so on. You don't call them by their first name. If you are going to be a parent, be a parent. Don't be that concerning parent only when the police call you and say, Hey, we have your son down here in jail because he did something stupid. You need to be a parent to where your son is smart enough to know that he shouldn't have done that in the first place.
1: One thing I was, I was curious uh, for my audience is you know, a lot of marketing, small business, young entrepreneurs, I think they want to hear the backstory behind the Bone Nose campaign.
0: That's mm-hmm. just as simple as, we were doing storyboards for our commercial. This was when computers was first coming on the scene. We had the storyboards laid out here on the table instead of getting on the computer and looking at everything, it had posters laid out with drawings. And we were trying to figure out how we should combine these posters to do one scene. And we had a little too much going on. So I said, why don't you take this and put it with this one? Let's take this one out and we could use this one in the other scene. And somebody across the table said, wow, Bo knows. And it stood out from that conversation sitting at the table back in 1985, 86, That's where the Bo Nose campaign started at that table, because I was telling a seasoned director and the marketing people of Nike that we should cut this out and put it here and this. And that's where the Bo Nose campaign started. That was a birth of Bo Nose, because I was telling somebody how to do their damn job.
1: (laughs) You're up their ass. (laughs) and it's No, not really,
0: not up their ass at that time, but just since I'm doing all of the work, let's cut this in half. To where we're not shooting this scene for a half a day, which we could do it in a couple of hours and get it done and be done for the day. It was uh, just the fact that I opened my mouth to actually try to remedy a problem that we had during a production shoot one day. That's all.
1: What were you thinking the campaign would do? Did you think it was going to be big? Do you think like... Uh-
0: nobody, nobody knew that the Bono's campaign would have been that big and it's still going 30 years later. Nobody knew that it was gonna be as big as it was. But luckily, we had the right people, we had the right marketing group, we had the right director, we had the right producers behind the scenes making sure everything go right. The execs at Nike gave us carte blanche on whatever we wanted to do as far as an ad campaign.
1: So it was very, very nice. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode as much as I did. If you did, there are three things I want you to go do for Bo. First, go check out Bo Jackson's charity, Bo Bikes Bama, at bobikesbama.com. Second, Bo helps minority kids in need with his Give Me a Chance Foundation. Check it out at givemeachancefoundation.org. Third, if you're in the food business or know someone who runs a restaurant, check out Bo's new meat line. Yes, he has meat, salmon burgers, tuna burgers, regular burgers, chicken burgers. Pretty interesting thing, and he loves to cook. So. His signature meats are Foods.com. Next, we made a behind the scenes video with Bo about his experiences as well. You can find it at okdork.com slash bo dash video. okdork.com slash bo dash video. Finally, text someone you love him. Yo dog, let's go get a Subway sandwich. Have an amazing day. Who's your favorite athlete of all time?